So, um, my sister got a dog recently. Beautiful little golden retriever. His name is Coda with a K. Um, beautiful dog. However, when I first met the dog, she introduced me as the dog's uncle. That doesn't sit too well with me. For whatever reason, I'm, I'm quite uncomfortable with being a, called a dog's uncle. I get uncomfortable when people call their dogs their children or when they say they're the mommy. Like, I prefer the, the language of the dog's master. <laughs> um, and I think it stems ultimately from this difference I see between, like, this is an animal and not a human being. Like, it's not my nephew or niece. I can't remember if it's a male dog or a female dog. There's a difference between, you know, if my brother and, or my sister and brother-in-law were to have a child, and, and that being called my nephew, and me being the uncle of that being rather than a dog. You know, you can call them your fur babies if you want. Just leave me out of it. <laughs> There's a difference in how we treat human life than how we treat the life of, of other living beings on Earth. Let me give you a very simple example of the way we treat mosquitoes, right? No one is going, very few are going around valuing the longevity of the life of the mosquito. In fact, if you were someone who is not willing to kill a mosquito, you may not be well-liked by others in the room with you. We, we see it in, in the way that, you know, we, we eat meat of other animals, where if you were to eat the meat of a human, you would be put away for quite a long time. We see it in the way that we very unceremoniously will flush the goldfish down the drain. There is a different weight that the life of the goldfish or the mosquito have to the life of a human being. Now, there are those... Uh, Many of our, of our Buddhist neighbors will, will uphold the value of all living life forms in ways that culturally for us may seem strange. You may remember a few years ago when they bought lots of lobster from fishermen to then release them back into the water and the fishermen were able to, to fish the same lobster twice. Or uh, I saw some of the, the nuns down uh, across the bridge you know, picking up worms after the, the rain that had taken place. Uh, so that the, the worms wouldn't die out on the sidewalks or on the streets. But for most of us, we do see a very stark difference between the value of the life of, of a mosquito or a goldfish or you know, even my sister's dog than of a human life. Culturally, there is a distinction that we make there. And as we're working through this kingdom and culture series where we're looking at the values of the kingdom of God that we uh, are, are, are seeking to live as followers of Jesus versus some of the, the cultural values that are around us. And, and sometimes we need to kind of push back or be shaped by the word of God rather than solely by the culture around us. The question of the value of human life is going to be part of the conversation. Now culturally, like I said, we do express the value of human life. Let me give you an example. This is from the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights from 1948. This is just the first couple articles that says, 
All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They're endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Article 2, everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political, or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. There is a way where culturally we do. We do say we value the life of all people. Yet there are some ways where we see in our culture where the come, it rubs up against this. We say we value all people, but yet at the same time, there are, there are ways where we live out more the survival of the fittest than we do the value of all human life. There are ways where we say we value all people, but also there, there are ways where we treat minorities or immigrants as less than in many circles. We say we value human life, but if you look at much of our t- entertainment, we are spending our time watching and playing games where we are just trying to find the funnest way of ending a human life. There's a contradiction that takes place in how many of us think when it comes to the value of life and how that gets played out for us. To go a bit heavier this morning, we will celebrate the, the fact that new children are born and pregnancy announcements and all the social media fanfare with it, and yet there is great advoca- uh, advocation for easier access to abortion. Where the life of a child can be a joyous occasion for some people in some circumstances, and then in the right circumstances, it could be cause of great fear where it's sought to be terminated. We see it in the shift in, in that we've seen in many of our lifetimes from the language of, of baby to fetus. We see it in the way that we say we value all people of all developmental levels, but there is the implicit suggestion of termination of a pregnancy if early on it is caught that this child might have some kind of developmental condition or disability. We say we value all people, including our elderly, yet we have read condemning reports of how many old age homes are run and the conditions that many of our senior citizens live in. We say we value those who have disabilities or medical conditions. Yet we've seen in the very recent past in our country more of a push towards the availability of medical assistance in dying. Listen, this morning is not intended to be a political conversation. I'm not trying to advocate for, you know, one party's platform versus another, one set of policies versus another. This morning, my goal is for us to have our minds on these issues shaped more by the words of God than by the values and language of the culture around us. This is our goal. And so this morning, the question for us is, what is it that God says about the value of a human life? How does God speak to this? And if we had a theme verse for this series that we go back to every week, Genesis 127 
when God creates humanity, he creates humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And if we read this passage kind of more in length than just this verse, we read that God places humanity over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock that live on the ground. That there is a special place that humanity has to partner with God in his ruling over his creation. That there is a unique place that humanity has in God's eyes with a level of value and dignity and relationship with its creator that other life forms do not have. If we read on in the Genesis account, there's kind of the first, like the seven-day kind of typical account that you read. But then in Genesis 2, there's another account of creation. And this is the account where it, it, it fleshes out, you know, the Garden of Eden and says God, you know, placed the, the man in the garden. And this is where it talks about God creating the man. It says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Now, however this takes place, if you were there with a video camera, that doesn't matter as much as what is being communicated theologically in this passage. That the breath, the life that brings the human to life is given from God. You know, in the, in the Hebrew, it says that God created Adam, Adam, from the Adama, from the dust of the earth. We don't get that kind of same, you know, wordplay in English. That we are from the ground and God gives us life. I read one English translation of the Old Testament recently that tried to pick up that language by saying God made the human from the humus of the earth. That we are a part of creation and it is God who gives us the breath of life. What this says to us is that life is given to us by God. That it is a gift to us from our Creator, and it is something only to be given and taken by God. Let's go to Psalm 139. This is a continuation of what we read this morning in opening our service. David says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. David expressing God's intimate knowledge of him in the womb before he was born. These are opening words in the book of Jeremiah where God speaks to Jeremiah, a young prophet who who is worried because he's young. And this is what God says, the Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Moving to the New Testament, we hear the story of of Elizabeth and Zechariah, Elizabeth being Mary's uh, cousin. And they're old, and God promises Zechariah that they're going to have a child, even though they're old. And the angel says to Zechariah about this child, 
that he would be the one that kind of foreshadows the Messiah, Jesus, who is coming. And the angel says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. We're pointing to these passages because they teach us that God is the originator of our lives. That God creates and knows us in the womb. That God sees the child in the womb as something alive and human, even able to be filled with the Spirit of God, like we read in Luke. Like we read in Psalm 139, that God has a purpose for our lives before we even come through the birth canal. And so, looking at these passages, we see that the reduction of a child in the womb to simply a fetus or a growth feeding off the host doesn't resonate with the biblical view of human life. And there is no place in the witness of Scripture that celebrates a person's right to choose to end a life of a child in the womb. Now, I understand that there are exceptional circumstances, that there are situations where people deeply grieved have to work through do we save the life of the child or the mother? Where people agonize over working through those very tough life and death situations. And I believe there is abundant grace to work through that, whatever the parents end up deciding with wise counsel and in prayer for discernment. I'm not trying to be political. I am just speaking the biblical view of life. Another significant cultural shift, as I mentioned earlier, is the increased availability of what's called MAID, medical assistance in dying. You may have previously heard it called physician-assisted suicide or uh, euthanasia. This past year has been a big year for this in... um, in Canada, something that I became very aware of as I took a course last year on, on ministering with people through situations of death and dying and palliative care. And, and I just, I just want to update you on some of the cultural going-ons in this conversation. Bill C-7, which was just uh, passed and received uh, royal assent very recently, removes a very significant clause in Canada's Uh, laws about medical assistance in dying, where previously if someone was seeking to have their life terminated, they would have to have a plan in place, have a a terminal condition or or a a condition that is seen as, as irreversible, and that their death is reasonably foreseeable, that they've already been given, this is how much time you have left. The Bill C-7 made amendments to the laws where no longer is your death required to be reasonably foreseeable. So now anyone who has what what would be considered a a terminal or chronic condition that is irreversible is able to request for their life to be ended, regardless of, of whether they may have years and years to come or whether their death is around the corner. Now, This has caused concern for many groups who advocate on behalf of those with with disability. 
that potentially this increased availability in our laws would cause those who maybe in their later years who have medical conditions to feel pressured into seeking this option by not wanting to cause burden on their family. We should ask ourselves of what this, this increased availability of this procedure says about the value and of, that we have as a society of those who have conditions or disabilities or levels of, uh, of, uh, of cognitive development that would make it easier for them to pursue this. Now there is not a, here is the passage in the Bible that talks about medical assistance in dying. And I know many of us have already had to face situations where this is a reality in our families. But I want to point you to the story of a man called Job in the Old Testament. Job, if you know the story, is a man where we don't know when he lived. It's probably one of the stories of the, the kind of earliest accounts of someone in the scriptures. But he had this, this uh, season in his life where everything was taken from him. His kids, his livelihood, his health. His wife says, curse God and die. And we see this very honest moment from Job in Job chapter 7 where he's realizing how bad he has it. He says, I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. Then he quotes Psalm 8. What is mankind that you make so much of them? that you give them so much attention. And despite Job's pain of his situation, despite his, his, his articulation of, I hate my life right now. It would be better if I didn't live on. We read further on in Job 12, his acknowledgement that in God's hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Verse 12, it is... Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? In Job's story, we see his, his working through the reality of my life is terrible and I would sooner it not go on, but this acknowledgement that life is God's. Life is God's to give. Life is God's to take. That even in my old age, is there not wisdom and understanding that can be found despite what I've been going through? And so this morning, as we wrestle through these conversations, these topics, I think there are two really underlying issues behind the conversation of ending life, whether on the front end or on the back. Two important, I think, areas where we need to critique the way we've thought about it. Those are the issues that I'm calling self, the sovereign self and suffering. 
When I talk about the sovereign self, what I mean is kind of our modern individualistic way of thinking that I see already abundant in my son. Where anything I ask him to do, it's no, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. And as much as I tell him, no, you need to put your pajamas on before you go to bed. No, you need to, you know, sleep up on your bunk and not out on the couch. No, you need to make sure you put a pull-up on and not just go commando. Anyway, all kinds of conversations. Where he wants to do his thing, like all of us do, if I'm honest. We all want to be the one in charge of our life. We want to be the one who gets to call the shots, who gets to determine the ultimate direction, who, who gets to say, this is what I will do and what I don't want to do, and sometimes even to the extent of saying, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. We're expanding these conversations as a culture into determining life or not life as well. Here's the thing, though, and here's where we need to critique this idea as Christians. When we choose to follow Christ, we are choosing to submit to him as our king. And our sovereignty gets knocked down a few notches. That he is the ultimate sovereign in our life, not ourselves. He is the one whose cues we take. He is the one whose teaching we follow. He is the one that we seek to allow to shape our thinking and our desires. He's the one whose lives we seek to live out, whose grace we receive. In following him, we are declaring that we are not the one ultimately in charge anymore. That there is one greater than I, wiser than I, who has my best interests in mind better than I do. And in following him, I'm ultimately going to find what I'm looking for. So if life is God's to give, then let us receive the life that God gives us. And if life is ultimately God's to take, let him take it in his timing. The second area of critique is our understanding and theology of suffering. I want you to, to hear my heart in this. I don't want to brush over this lightly and and without deep understanding of some of the things that you guys are going through. From my experience, many of the decisions to end life, whether on the front end or on the back end, often come from a place of fear of suffering. I don't want this child to come into a world or to a family that's broken. I don't think that I can afford to provide financially for this child. I'm scared that I won't be able to handle the challenges that the condition that this child may have would require of me. I'm scared of suffering a slow death with cancer. 
I'm scared that I'll be isolated in a hospital without family during COVID. I'm worried I'll cause burden and suffering on my family for living with my condition. I'm scared of losing my autonomy. All of these are very real and common expressions of fear of suffering when it comes to life. And I want us to be able to unpack together this morning a bit of a more holistic understanding of suffering. First of all, the reality that suffering exists in our world has boggled philosophers' minds for centuries. The biggest questions of life is why would a good God allow suffering to continue to exist in this world? Those are not easy questions to answer, and we will wrestle with them continually. But here are some important things I think we need to land on together. One, that suffering is not God's original design for his creation. When we read of God's intention for his creation, he called it good. That there was a a beautiful relationship between creation and God, between humanity and the rest of creation, between human beings together. That there was not the kind of suffering that we experience in the world today. And so as Christians, we believe that suffering is a byproduct of sin in the world. Without sin, there is no suffering. And suffering exists because sin exists. The second thing that we need to land on together this morning is that you will experience suffering of one form or another. At the youth retreat that we had last weekend, one of my favorite sessions that took place was when Dwight Ingersoll, who is a Christian clinical uh, counselor, he came and he spoke to the teens and he said, listen, some of you aren't dealing with the worst that you're going to deal with, but you will at some point. We need to have the reality check that we will face severe suffering at some point to one degree or another. He even pointed out Jesus' words that in this life, you will experience trouble. It's, It's a promise from Jesus that there will be moments of difficulty and suffering that we experience. If we live our lives expecting that because we follow Jesus, because we call ourselves a Christian, because we're a religious person, that life is going to be great and we will never experience suffering. We are setting ourselves up for immense disappointment and failure and I would argue that we are buying into a gospel different than the gospel of Jesus. It doesn't mean everything bad in the world is going to go away and not affect the minute we think that because, because I follow Jesus, I'm not going to be sick or face financial difficulty or have relational strife in my family, 
We're believing in a gospel of, of prosperity that is not the gospel of Jesus. We are going to face suffering. But thirdly, and very importantly, is that God does some of his best work in us in the seasons where we are experiencing suffering. This is not God's endorsement of, oh, see, suffering is a good thing. But there is a reality that some of you in this room have experienced of encountering and being close to God through your seasons of suffering that others of us in this room have not experienced because we've not suffered the way you have. I'm going to read to you James' words. James is the brother of Jesus. He said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James is writing to a church that is facing severe persecution because of their newfound faith in Jesus. And his advice to them, as the brother of Jesus, isn't to say God has abandoned you because you're experiencing suffering, but consider it joy that suffering is coming about in your life because God is going to do some immense work in you through that. We need to realize, though, in saying that, it doesn't mean that joy is a happy thing, or joy, suffering, sorry, is a happy thing. It doesn't mean that we pat people on the back and say, ah, well, you know, you're going through this, but think of how great it's going to be. This is something that we let the Spirit of God minister to our hearts and hit us with. To know that in our moments of suffering, we're not abandoned. God is not absent. But He is present and working in us in a unique way during those times. Fourth, part of the work of the church is to be a witness and demonstration of the kingdom of God by working to alleviate and heal the suffering we see us in the world. Just because suffering is a way in which God has shown himself to work, does not mean we just allow the suffering in the world to go on when we can do something about it. We can show God's purpose of redeeming his creation and one day making a world where there is no sin or suffering. We can show glimpses of that now in how we as God's people seek to help alleviate suffering in our world. Let me give you some historical examples and practical ways where we see this lived out. Did you know that the first public hospitals were established by followers of Jesus to alleviate the suffering of those who were facing illness? That the early Christians were known for listening to and spending time with those in the margins of society? 
those who are much more likely to face suffering than the majority. That we can help heal suffering and hurt by giving and, and receiving hospitality with the poor. To not just be a people who say, oh, here's a handout, but to be people who live in relationship with those who are poor. Who give them the dignity of being able to receive from them as well. We see in Jesus' teaching about visiting the prisoner and the sick. Also visiting the elderly and the isolated. And alleviating their, their suffering of loneliness. Of caring for and befriending people of all developmental levels. Regardless of condition, of difficulty, of communication, to see them as made in the image of God because they're human. In advocating for racial, gender, social equality. In adoption and foster parenting. This is something where I think as Christians who often are very loud on like the pro-life abortion issue, this is a way where the rubber meets the road in terms of adoption and foster parenting. I have good friends who have just started to walk through the foster parenting conversation, and that has been a deep inspiration for me because I think that Christians do a lot better in investing in those areas than ever picketing an abortion clinic. In refugee sponsorship. In showing hospitality to those who live in unsafe places. And hospice and end-of-life care. Man, if you want to get into an area that will give your life immense value and purpose, spend time with people who are dying. To care for them in those last moments as they anticipate their final breaths. Seeing death as the solution to the kind of suffering we see in the world is, is using the, the tools of the fall in order to try to fix the fall. It's fighting fire with fire. We as, as the people of Jesus can seek to respond to suffering with the way of the kingdom, with compassion and selfless love and grace, and real practical help. My last point on suffering is that ultimately a life in which there is suffering is a greater good than no life at all. Because it is a gift from God. I want to land on this this morning. In all our talk about suffering, we have a God who's not unfamiliar with suffering. We have a God who experiences and knows what it is to suffer. We have a Savior who died on the cross for us to have life. Who God in the flesh with the, the nerves and the pain and the blood experienced a gruesome execution 
He knows suffering. On the cross, he paid for our sins. He offers us forgiveness. Forgiveness for my sin. Forgiveness for our sin in the moments where we cause suffering to others. Forgiveness for the mom who went through with the abortion and has been wrestling with it every day of her life since then. Forgiveness for us for when we fail to act to respond to the suffering that we see. And in his resurrection, Jesus offers us hope. Hope that life can be better. Hope that one day he will restore all things and a promise that he will be with us in the midst of the suffering that we will face. So may you and I be the hands and feet in that, of that promise. Let's pray. Jesus, you, you see our hearts and our hurts you see the situations that we have faced and the situations we will face in the future. You, you see our lives and you gave your life for our life. Jesus, I, I pray that our minds would be shaped by your words on what life is. I also pray that our hearts would be shaped by your example and your sacrifice of, of loving in a way to, to heal suffering. Help us to live that out. In Christ's name, amen.